Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, anytime. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end, where we're also going to share an exciting opportunity, and please feel free to share this with others who you also think will find it of interest. Today, I'm really excited. I, I'm, I always say that at the beginning of the episodes, um, that I'm excited to have a guest, but I have to tell you, today's guest, Rabbi David Stav, is somebody who is is truly one of the great leaders in Israel today, and, we'll, and you'll, you'll hear why. Uh, I want to give you a quick introduction of who he is and the organization that he runs. But more importantly, over the course of the conversation, we're going to speak specifically relating to the role of the role of the temple in the past and God willing in the future as a house of prayer for all nations. Um, we're going to get into that. But first, let me just give you a little bit of background. Rabbi David Stav is the founder and chairman of a very important organization called SOHAR, a modern Orthodox rabbinic organization which aims to provide religious services to and create dialogue within the broader Israeli population. He serves as the chief rabbi of a city called Shoham, which is near Ben-Gurion Airport, and you're invited to go uh, come to the airport and we'll stop over at his house uh, to visit if he's home. Previously, he served as a rabbi of a religious film school called Ma'aleh and was one of the founding heads of the Shivat Hezder in Petach Tikva. And, and, and that's an um, institution for young men who, who are going into the army and combine uh, military service with religious studies. He's the author of a number of books, and, and uh, I'll, I'll invite you, rather than reading all of the names, um, to be in touch with me because most of them are very, very specific Jewish themes, and Rabbi Stav, maybe you'll you'll comment in a moment about which ones might be especially accessible or interesting to a non-Jewish and particularly a Christian audience. But one of the ones that I think is so important um, is a book, two books relating to intimacy and modesty. And we had a, a, a conversation about that in a previous podcast about a year ago. And that's maybe a topic to come back on, but that's something that we Jews and Christians um, also grapple with in a, in a society that's so sexualized and 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 so um, sometimes vulgar in its most basic things. Rabbi Stav is one of Israel's most visible rabbinic figures, and he regularly appears on Israeli television and radio and lectures to a wide range of audiences. Now, I'm catching him in New York today in the middle of his uh, tour, if you will, speaking around uh, Jewish congregations mostly in the US, and it's really an honor, and I don't say this with rhetoric, uh, it's really an honor, Rabbi Stav, to have you join Inspiration from Zion today. 
Shalom, good morning to everyone, and I'm really happy to be with you. I really believe that one of the uh, signs of redemption for the Jewish people today in Israel is the fact that we want to uh, share our views and our thoughts with the entire world, especially with the Christian world, that we share a lot in common. Well, I think I think you just began and ended the podcast in an incredible way. Uh, we could end it there because that's a very, very important statement. But before we go there, I'd like you to please share. I know Sohar, and I think what you do is so important uh, that we as Orthodox Jews have a responsibility in the state. And it's my term to make Judaism more user-friendly. And I don't know if that's a good term that you're comfortable with. Can you tell us about Sohar, this so important organization? I would like to, I, I would like to put it in a bit in a different uh, way. Great. Um, Sohar in Hebrew means, has two interpretations. When Noah was commanded by God to build the ark, he was told to make it Sohar. And there are two interpretations to the word Sohar. One is a window, so you will be able to see through the window what's going on in the world. But there is another meaning of the word Sohar, which is a good stone, a good stone that will enlighten the, the ark from inside. And I think that what we try to do in our organization, on one side, we want to open the window for all groups to expose themselves to each other, to see how they look like from the other side and to be aware to the sensitivities of that others. That's one thing. On the other side, we want all of us to be inspired by the Bible, by the Jewish values, by the Jewish heritage, so that people will feel that Judaism is a kind of a good stone that could inspire their lives and could inspire their their behaviors. And therefore, we called this organization in this name. But the idea was, right after the assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, we felt that the hatred between Jews and especially between those who are observant to those who are not uh, are not observant arrived to peaks that uh, we we could not continue like usual anymore. The fact that the murder was belonged to a religious group made it even worse and caused actually connected between religion and uh, murder. And we thought that. Uh, it's our turn today to prove that not only the Judaism is not about murdering, but it's about increasing connection, increasing love between each other. And uh, that's why we open an organization that will try to show the nice face of Judaism yeah. and nice face of Jewish services. Well, I, I'll, I'll add, I'll correct you on one thing, which is very immodest of me. You don't, you do try, but you are very successful. And and that doesn't mean that there are many not many more opportunities, but but Sohar is um, is a tremendous tremendously important organization, and it's important that you that you noted that this was after the assassination of Prime Minister Rabin, because first of all, for those who don't remember, that was in 1995. You're almost we're going back almost 30 years now with that, so Sohar is almost 30 years old, and uh, and you're doing really great work. I want to talk about. I wanted to talk about specifically some of the projects, what you're doing, but it wasn't even on my list to talk with you about, but you just opened up a topic that I can't not ask about. Um, since 1995, since Prime Minister Rabin's assassination, have you seen 
such divisiveness in Israel as we're experiencing now over a completely different topic? And and what's what's your point? What's your perspective on that? A no, the answer is no. It's I think it's the most serious uh, divisiveness that exists in Israel since it was established in 1948. I was not wow. there, so I could not wit- testify that. But I could testify from my experience. It's the biggest split that we have ever experienced in the state of Israel. And from my point of view, again, it's not the official uh, topic of the judicial reform. But I look at this situation from a Jewish point of view. And uh, there is a a common denominator. Um, Again, with all the differences, the uh, murder of Yitzhak Rabin was done by a religious uh, boy and the judicial reform is actually led by religious forces. Correct. And uh, at least from the secular point of view, it's perceived that that there is a connection between Judaism and uh, being anti-democratic. And uh, one of the messages that we try to convey I hope with the success um, is that it could be a political position of a religious man or woman from one side or another side, but it has nothing to do with Judaism. Judaism is supporting democracy. Judaism is supporting human rights. And it's not that uh, Judaism is supposed to put restrictions on uh, individuals' behavior. Well, we we do have restrictions on our behavior. They come from the Torah, but not but not from. Of course, but it's not. Uh, of course, Judaism teaches us how to behave, how right. to practice, how to observe commands of God. But it's not for Judaism to coerce itself on people that do not want to accept it. Yeah, and the judicial reform is not about the individual behavior. Rather, it's about the way the government or the Knesset should lead the country and the concern, I'm not saying they are right or wrong, but the concern of a big group is that with weakening the Supreme Court and strengthening the power of Knesset and government, we might arrive to situations where certain rights of the secular society would be restricted. Right. Well, very very well said, and I couldn't couldn't agree with you more, and I couldn't uh, honestly say it any better or simpler. Uh, is there a solution? Is there a solution to the divisiveness? Yes, I think it's not a five minutes uh, discussion, but I think that uh, we need, you know, there is a very famous expression of American rabbi used to live in America uh, for many years, Rabbi Yosef Ber Soloveitchik, that used to uh, define the Jewish identity based on um, on two covenants. Covenant of faith and covenant of destiny. Covenant of faith means that we all lived in Egypt, we all suffered from the Egyptians, and that's what united us. That's a a common faith. And there is a a covenant of destiny, which means when we arrived to Mount Sinai and we received the Torah, we agreed actually about a vision of the Jewish people. What does it mean to be Jewish? What is the what is the dream? What is the ideal of the Jewish people, of the Jewish philosophy? Now, the state of Israel, was, was, which was established right after the Holocaust, 
was based basically on a covenant of faith. We all agreed to fight for the state of Israel because we understood, especially after the Holocaust, that uh, we need to unite forces and we are under threat of the Arabic people that surround the state of Israel. And despite all the nuances and all the differences, we need to live together, although we don't see anything in common. 75 years later, thank God, we feel today much safer. We feel today that our relationship with our Arabic neighbors are much better. can see as a kind of a sign for that, the agreements with Egypt, with Jordan, with Morocco, with the Emirates. The feeling is that the that the covenant of fate um, has finished its time. Now uh-huh. it's time for a covenant of common destiny. Wow. Common destiny, we have to sit together and to, to understand and to analyze what does it mean to be Jewish? What are our roots? What are our ambitions? What is our ideals? What are our visions? How, how does it affect our relationship between ourselves, our relationship between our neighbors, and uh, our neighbors from distance. What does it mean? How do we refer to non-Jewish people that live in Israel? How do we refer to the Jewish people that are not observant in Israel? And when we, if we sit together and write this covenant, how we come, how we are all from the same root, and therefore that's what should inspire us. On the other hand, we understand the, the importance of each one of the groups, each one of the tribes that the Israeli society is consisted of, to live its life in freedom, in, independently, I guess that this is the way to get out from this crisis. Well, so that's, a, that's a, also a great answer. And I think you've given the listeners an incredible window, appropriately, so I'll, to, uh, to you and your vision and, and um, that, uh, th- that destiny that we need to be striving for. And I'd love to have you back for a bigger conversation on that topic alone. Hopefully by that time, the issue of the judicial reform and the divisiveness that we're experiencing now will not be in the in the headlines to the extent that it is. But thank you for that. Before we get into really the tachlis, the substance, um, y- you speak English with a slight accent, but completely fluently. Um, and if someone weren't paying attention, they would think that you might even be uh, not native Israeli born, but uh, but in fact an immigrant like myself. But you are Israeli born, and I'm curious. I love to share with our listeners what's your family background, who who came to Israel, and when, and what what motivated that. My parents arrived to Israel. Uh, my mother arrived to Israel after um, her father was sent to Siberia because he was a rabbi of a city. was sent was arrested by the communist regime in Ukraine and was sent to Siberia and when he was released he was actually uh, uprooted from uh, Ukraine and he had to live with his family and he arrived to Palestine in 1937 that's my mother my father was a holocaust survivor his family was murdered in Poland uh, in Belgium's uh, um, concentration camp and um, he escaped to Russia and from there, after being two years in divorce in the hospital there, he made Aliyah in 1949. He met my mother and uh, they got married. And uh, I'm the third child. My English um, is, um, 
actually not from Israel. You don't learn uh, English in Israel, at least not uh, <laughs> at that level. Uh, I learned in America for one year. Got it. I learned in Baltimore for one year. It's a high school called Ner Israel, Ner Israel, the candle of Israel. Um, I learned there for one year. And in the last couple of years, actually, I come, I fly into the States uh, once in two months and uh, I improve. I try to improve my English. I speak in many uh, places, uh, mostly Jewish, although I have no problem to speak in non-Jewish, uh, to non-Jewish audience. Uh, not only that I don't have a problem, I'm very happy to do that and do that in Israel from time to time. Um, for the different delegations that arrive to Israel. And I see my mission in life actually to connect people to God. And to connect people to God, it begins with Jewish people that uh, feel that uh, they are frustrated or disappointed from the religious establishment, and therefore they look for um, fresh ideas or fresh figures that will be able to connect them. Uh, to Judaism in a way they were not used to. And I'm happy to do this with uh, non-Jewish people as well, because I Thank think you. all of us are the kids of God. So I want to take that that idea of connecting people to God a little bit deeper. But first, let's take a very quick break and come back to that. If you're like most people in the world, you know about the Holocaust, but never met, much less interacted with the Holocaust survivor or heard their stories of suffering and survival. With the remaining elderly survivors dying at an unprecedented pace, in less than a generation, there will be none alive. Yet, while they did survive, and for that we need to celebrate them, many still suffer trauma from their youth. As they age, they have increasing needs. And living on fixed incomes, sometimes with no pension, things as simple and essential as basic foods, heating in the winter, medicine, and inflation can push someone over the line from surviving to struggling again. It can create stress in their lives that reminds them of the suffering they endured as young people. It's just not acceptable that anyone who suffered as much should struggle with basic needs or any undue stress in their twilight years. I want to invite you to join the Genesis 123 Foundation to bless the survivors. Yes, we pray that you'll donate personally and do so generously. And when you do, we also give you the opportunity to send your personal blessings and words of encouragement to the survivors themselves to brighten their day and let them feel your love. Having been privileged to provide financial resources to help survivors on a day-to-day -day basis, I know it makes a difference and is very appreciated. But your personal note that we translate into Hebrew, Russian, or Yiddish really makes them smile and warms their heart. I pray you'll join us by going to genesis123.co slash hug a survivor. That's genesis123.co slash hug a survivor. And please share this with others. We can't undo the suffering that they endured. And there's no limit to what the needs are, but we can never do too much to comfort them in their final years. Please join us. God bless you. Okay, Rabbi Stav, this is a personal pleasure. I, I hope many other people will listen, but I'm just envious of myself having this time with you. 
um, when we before we took the break, you you said your your mission is to connect people with God, and you're doing that through an organization called Sohar, um, which is a window. and 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 I love the meanings and the metaphor that you explained. Can you give an overview, um, specifically in the state of Israel, of how you're connecting people to God? I know that there's an, a, a wide array of programs. Um, we're, we're we're in the middle of the uh, holiday season now in in uh, the month of uh, Tishrei, uh, September, October. Um, I know that there are activities that you're doing now, especially in communities, but could you please give an overview so people understand yeah. what that means? I think our, our flagship is marriage. And it's it was not chosen uh, coincidentally. It's a, it's a project that actually says that um, since in Israel there is no civil marriage, because Israel is a Jewish state and as such, it defined itself that marriage will be done only through the religion the couple is affiliated with. So Christians are doing it through different churches they are associated with, and Muslims are doing it through the mosque. And uh, Jewish people are supposed to do this through the uh, rabbinate. But many of the secular youngsters, actually I would say uh, most of them, feel not comfortable to do that through the rabbinate. First of all, because they don't feel any connection to the religious life and especially in such an intimate moment in their lives they don't want to see a rabbi that uh, from their point of view does uh, does not share anything in common with them and could not inspire them in the day of their wedding so um, we decided to choose this project as something that will connect us to the couples in the time that they are really open open-minded to new ideas and to be inspired because they a bit concerned how will the family life look like um, <clears throat> despite the fact that they know each other for years but it's not the same thing now they are committed now they are obligated to each other and uh, we started this project of uh, weddings and um, it's hard to describe you just said it's successful it's way behind this I mean it's uh, above this it's, uh, it's uh, thousands of couples could you imagine while we're speaking today now it's uh, uh, Sunday today, Sunday night will be more than uh, 30, 40, maybe 50 couples that will get married under our uh, authorities and our wow. rabbis and uh, it's, it's, it's really uh, um, inspiring and uh, um, uplifting to, to, to meet every week I meet with the generals with the officers just last week, I was I met I met with one of the senior uh, commanders of the secret services, and he wanted to meet with me to ask me a few questions about things to consult with me. But he opened the conversation first. I want to thank you for marrying me, because one of you rabbis married me and myself. Otherwise, I wouldn't get married in a Jewish way. Incredible. And uh, next week, I'm, I'm when I'm coming back to Israel, I'm marrying one of the chief officers of the police in Israel. I mean, it's a, it became something that people feel that this kind of Judaism uh, could engage them back to things that they already lost their trust. So that's one example. The second example is the prayers of uh, Yom Kippur, especially the high holidays. We know that um, in Israel, uh, most secular people that, generally speaking, come from uh, Western countries, especially from Europe, um, they do not fast on Yom Kippur 
and they do not go to synagogues in Yuki. And uh, our attempt is not to make them observant. Our attempt is to try to make them proud for their heritage. And what we try to do is to open neutral spaces. We have more than 600 locations all over the country where tens of thousands of people come and show up to pray. But we don't only pray. We discuss what is the meaning of the pray. We give classes after the prayers. I mean, we create a kind of experience that people feel that this kind of Judaism is something that they miss and uh, they want to strengthen their connection uh, to God through these uh, prayers. I would share with you, if, if I, may, I, I may, an anecdote. Yes. Uh, on Yom Kippur, the services are very long, very, very long. And my father, bless his memory, used to tell me when I'm a cantor, please, please finish the last pray of Yom Kippur in time so people will be able to eat when uh, the fast is finished right away. Don't, don't um, make them stay at the synagogue too long. And I always, I tried to follow what my father commanded me to do, except for this event. And I'm always keeping the people more and more, 10, 20, 25 minutes after the time. And people ask me, why? Why do you do that? And I said, look, these kids are coming to the synagogue once a year. I know how God is missing them. I know that the next time you will see them will be in a year from now. You know, I feel like a father that, that have a few kids. One comes to me every morning. I don't, uh, it, it's already, I'm used to it. But this son or daughter that come to my home once a year, I try in all efforts possible to keep yeah. them by me, to keep them at home as, as long as, I'm, as, as, as it's possible. And that's the way I feel towards my colleagues. And, uh, and uh, thank God they come and they re-come. And thank God we and continue. What, and what's which is all incredible. And I love how you uh, explain that. But one of the things that listeners need to know is that all of these, every place that there is a Yom Kippur service that's taking place in a community in Israel, in a secular community, and you're inviting people, and as you said, connecting them to God and keeping them connected just for a few minutes extra. All of that is is done by volunteers. I suspect mostly rabbis, but maybe not all. And they're they're taking the day, the most intense spiritual day of the year. They're taking it away from them from their families. They're they're choosing to be in a place which is not the religious environment that they would normally be in, which is, uh, I it's don't know, true. I wouldn't say we're talking about thousands of volunteers. Yeah. We're talking about thousands of volunteers that leave their homes. But I could tell you that all of them, all of them with, without exception, come again and again every year. And they always thank me yes. for giving them the opportunity to experience such an experience because it's a really amazing experience. And what's amazing also as you're as you're saying this, I'm thinking, wow, this would make such a good video, a promotional video. But because it's Yom Kippur, uh, Christians may not know this. We're not doing filming. There's no recording. There's no pictures. It is a it is a no. day of just intense spirituality and connecting to God, and and so there is no such thing. So all of these experiences are personal and private and intimate. And you know, there are attempts to do not not by us. There are attempts to do a 
uh, to try to film these events. And I'm really happy that we don't do that because it keeps it pure without public relations, without thinking how will they, how will it look in television? And yes, it's better this way. And we are very happy with that. These are But, the only two examples of projects that connects people to God. Every Friday, we have now recently, we have launched an, a new project. Every Friday, gathering uh, um, in more than 100 locations, um, people that are not observant to receive the Shabbat, to talk about the idea of Saturday. What does it mean to be... To, to observe Shabbat? What does it yes. mean to, just to mention to yourself, to remind yourself that there is such a day as it's written in the, in the book uh, of Genesis uh, that be began the way the world began and the fact that uh, God was sanctifying the seventh day. And actually to feel this um, and to expose this feeling with other people is something which is very meaningful. I agree with you 100%. Thank you, Rabbi Stas. So we, I hope that everyone listening has, I, I know that everyone listening has now gotten an incredible understanding just for you as a man with a very big and inclusive uh, vision for life, specifically relating to Jews, but not exclusively. I'd like to pivot the conversation now to move, to talk about how we engage with our non-Jewish friends and specifically Uh, Christians, you used a word before that 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 this is part of redemption, uh, the connection between Jews and Christian. I, I think you meant Christians specifically, not Gentiles. Yes, but can you speak about that kind of globally? Why what, why is this redemptive? I think that um, when the Jewish people lived in the exile through the throughout the entire time, 2,000 years, uh, one of the major missions was to preserve themselves as Jews, not to assimilate, and uh, to keep the tradition in order that when we come back to the state of Israel, to the land of Israel, we will be able to share our values with others. Our temple, oh, that we all... Um, dream, we all pray three times a day that it will be rebuilt, was a temple that as King Solomon was saying in his first prayer when he launched the first temple, he said I want this place to be a place of prayer to all nations to all Gentiles if somebody wants to bring a sacrifice, if somebody wants to pray, he has a problem with a spouse, with a child, with a parent, health problem, um, uh, economic, financial problems, whatever problem people have, they should feel that the temple is their home and the temple belongs to them. Our rabbis say that if the Romans that destroyed the temple would have known how the temple is a source of bless for all humanity, for all human beings in the world, they would have put a whole battalion of soldiers surrounding the temple, not letting anybody to touch it. Because the temple is not supposed to be only ours. It's supposed to be in Jerusalem. 
but it's supposed to enlighten the entire world, not only the Jewish people. And therefore, when we come back to the land of Israel, to the state of Israel, and we establish our independence, we see as a part of our mission to um, to see how these ideas will be implemented and transformed to the entire society, to the entire humanity. And that's why when uh, we run, we have different discussions and meetings with uh, non-Jewish people. We talk about the values that uh, we share in common and the values that uh, the temple is, suppo- is supposed to be a source of inspiration for these values. So I want to take, a, you, you've really just opened up a few different topics that we could go in and I don't want to cut you off in the middle. So I want to take another very quick break and then come back and go see if I can keep track and go into these different parallel ideas that you've just um, opened up. But let's take a quick break. The restoration of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel was an earth-shattering event. For Christians, it was a confirmation that God always keeps his covenantal promises. Today, we are blessed to see God's fingerprints in the modern miracle of the land of Israel playing out in our lives among the people and in the state of Israel. This year, on the occasion of Israel's 75th anniversary, the Genesis 123 Foundation has been privileged to bring together 75 Christian leaders from around the world to lend their unique voices, sharing their personal faith experiences relating to Israel and their in-depth insight into Israel's history and spiritual significance, creating an historical, one-of-a-kind, high-end coffee table book. Israel the Miracle. Israel the Miracle's stunning imagery will fill your home with the hope of fulfilled promises and conversations about Israel. It's a perfect gift to anyone for any occasion, and most of all, to yourself. You'll also be a blessing to Israel, knowing that the proceeds will go to bless Israelis of all backgrounds. Be a part of Israel the Miracle and bring the land, the people, and the state of Israel into your heart and into your home. Visit IsraelTheMiracle.com to get your limited edition copy today. Okay, Rabbi Stav, um, I want to explore with you the idea that the temple is not only ours, but is a a place for enlightening everybody. And we're speaking in the the present tense, which, which is something else to come back to. But before we even do that, you mentioned that even King Solomon spoke about, right? When the temple existed, when the temple stood... That that non-Jews, that Gentiles, this is before Christi- Christianity, could bring sacrifices, could bring offerings. And it was a, a place serving that spiritual um, outlet for everybody. What did that look like? How, how, would a, how would a Gentile approach the temple? You know, now we have in the, in the city of David, the new pilgrimage road and the, the um, pool of, uh, of Siloam that's now been excavated, which served as the mikvah, the ritual cleansing. Did, Christ, did, did Christians, excuse me, did Gentiles go through the same process that Jews did in order to ascend to the temple? And what was that interaction like? I'm not sure about it. Okay. Uh, I, there were places that uh, only uh, not even um, not even um, Jews were allowed to go in, only clergymen, only Kohanim, only those who were uh, chosen by God to, to, uh, to serve. Uh, the grand priest or the priests, but uh, it's not, uh, it didn't, uh, there were places where um, 
only priests were allowed to enter. There were place, places where men were allowed to enter. There were places ah, where right. women were allowed to enter. I don't know what is the exact place where the Gentiles were allowed to enter. I'm not sure that they were allowed to enter all the places, but that doesn't mean that they couldn't enter to certain areas and that they couldn't send their services, their, their offerings, because they, usually the offering was brought to the altar through the priest. And the priest, never mind, even if you, you were Jewish, you couldn't, you couldn't uh, give, bring the offer to the altar if you were not the priest. So I guess in that sense, there wasn't a difference between a sacrifice that was given by a Jew or a sacrifice that was given by a non-Jewish uh, uh, guy. Um, we know as a fact, that as an historical fact, that the Roman Caesar used to send sacrifice on a daily basis. Actually, our tradition tells us that uh, one of the reasons that uh, caused to the destruction of the Second Temple was the refusal of the refusal of the priest to accept one of the sacrifices of the uh, of the Caesar because uh, one of the people made a, a damage in the ship and actually made invalidated it to be a sacrifice and after they did refused to accept the sacrifice the man went to the Romans and said well you see the Jews rebel and they don't want to 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 uh, accept your sacrifice so we see from that story a that Jews used to receive from the Caesar everyday uh, sacrifices we we understand from that that it was a common behavior by the Caesar we know that other Gentiles were doing the same we know, and there are a lot of regulations in the halacha, uh, which is actually our oral laws, uh, how to handle with the sacrifices and offerings that were given by non-Jewish people. And how were they entering exactly? What was their location? I'm not sure about. Okay. Um, I believe that this idea of a temple that actually belongs to all nations as the verse says my house will be a house of prayer for all nations this is a part of our vision actually you know that we start to uh, pray for, for forgiveness in this month of Elul which is prior to uh, the month of the high holidays usually in towards the end of August beginning of September and uh, this is one of the verses that we'll, we right. will keep on saying every day or every night. My house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. And, that, and I'm glad you mentioned that. First of all, it's important, although anyone who's half intelligent will understand that, that, that God is speaking in the first person. It's not someone else commenting. It's God right. saying, this is my house. And it's not a Jewish house of prayer. It's a house of prayer for all nations. And, and there are many things to go on, on on that topic. But I especially wanted to have this conversation now around Sukkot, which Christians know and celebrate as the Feast of Tabernacles. And every year for I don't know how many years, um, the International Christian Embassy has been bringing thousands of Christian pilgrims to celebrate what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And we see now not just a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but we're seeing now more and more Jews and Christians going up to the Temple Mount to affirm that, okay, yes, there's not a temple today, but this is the location that God designated as that. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation now, because I don't know, and, maybe, and you can correct me, that Sukkot is any more significant in that capacity than any of the other pilgrimage festivals that we uh, would come, whether a Passover or a Shavuot. Of course, because Sukkot is actually mentioned in the, the prophet that says that there will come a time when all the nations will come to celebrate on Sukkot, when the temple will be rebuilt. But there is another reason why Sukkot is connected to all nations. According to the Bible, Jews were supposed to bring, to sacrifice 70 cows, actually 70 bulls, um, throughout the days of Sukkot. And the, the number 70 is symbolic because the number 70 is symbolizing the 70 nations that existed in the oh. world in the time of our rabbis 2,000 years ago. And that means that actually when we bring sacrifices on Sukkot, wow. when we bring them to, to the altar, actually we pray for all humanity. We bring sacrifices that will represent all you all mankind and that's why sukkot is referring uh, became a symbol to all nations that celebrate with us in jerusalem you know this is only an audio podcast i get to see you because i like to see who i'm speaking to but i wish we could add an extra dimension because i you're I, as soon as you said that it clicked and i have to tell you my heart rate just exploded thinking about exactly what you're saying, 70 bulls representing all of the nations, specifically now, um, uh, that stirred me. That, give me. that gives me a lot of, uh, what's, the, what's the English word for chizuk? Encouragement, strength. Strengthening. Uh, what's the word? Strengthening. Strength, yeah, strengthening. And I'm hoping that, that other Jewish and Christian friends who are listening will also take that away. But here's another area that I want to go. And I think I don't like to air dirty laundry. I don't like to speak badly about the state of Israel and and rabbinic leadership or politics, although sometimes it's necessary because we have to have candid conversations. And whether it's on the Temple Mount specifically or Christians who more and more in the last decades are connecting with the Jewish roots of their faith and, and affirming that, yo, Jesus wasn't a Baptist. Jesus was an Orthodox Jew like you, like me, 2,000 years ago. I think, and it's my word, you can correct me if I'm, uh, I, I don't want to put this in your uh, word in your mouth, but I think that we, one of the things that we've developed in 75 years of statehood is a little bit of sense of arrogance as it relates to the nations, in the sense that we are so successful, we're strong, we do need support, we're strong, we have got a good economy, even with the problems, and I think so many Israeli Jews are just raised with no connection to Gentiles other than our immediate neighbors, and many of our immediate neighbors are not such good friends. And as it relates to Christians, at best, we don't care. And and that's, it. Dis, it's dismaying to me because it's not Rabbi David Stav and Jonathan Feldstein having a conversation about what we think the vision 
for the temple must be and for our relationship to Gentiles and specifically Christians. It's God. So would you respond to that? Do you think, am I, am I on target? Is there, is there a sense of arrogance? What do we need to do as Jews that we can affirm what the role is of, of the temple when it's back, please God soon, as the house of prayer to all nations and not an exclusive house of prayer for Jews of a particular denomination? Well, first of all, I think that you are partly right. And I guess there are a lot of reasons to to what you described. Um, I think that uh, we have a history that uh, causes a lot of people to uh, to be a bit confused. On one side, uh, we cannot erase uh, history of two thousand years when uh, where Jews suffered uh, from Christians in Spain in pogroms in uh, Kishinev, in uh, Ukraine, in Russia, in other places, uh, on the name of religion, and sometimes in the name of, uh, of Christianity. On the other hand, uh, we cannot ignore the fact that uh, there are millions of Christians that are amazing people and uh, have good life and share good values and love the state of Israel and love Jews and have nothing to do with this path. Now, for an average Israeli, and especially if he's an observant uh, guy, uh, it's hard to make the distinction between these two. Yes. But I want to quote an expression that Rav Kook, one of the very famous rabbis in the previous century, said, if anybody thinks that to love Jewish people means to hate non-Jewish people, it didn't even touch the first class of understanding what does it mean to be Jewish. Because to be Jewish means that you should see yourself as the source of bless for the entire humanity. To love Jewish people, not only doesn't it mean that you should hate non-Jewish, it means that you should love everybody. Because a part of Judaism is understanding that we care about every human being that was created in the shape of God. That we care about every, every man and woman that suffer in any place in the world. Because we see ourselves not only as people that were were uh, receiving a mission for themselves, but our mission is rather reflecting and 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 should influence the entire society, entire world, and not only ourselves. We are not here for ourselves. It's not another nation that wants to strengthen its nationality for for different reasons. Reasons. Our mission is to bring justice and charity to the entire world. And as such, we should show love to every human being. Okay. Again, you've done something incredible. Thank you for quoting Rav Cook, Rabbi Cook, who was, now I'm embarrassed, was the first, no, he was not the first chief rabbi. Uh, he, was, he was the first chief Ashkenazi chief rabbi. Of the state. But before him was Rabbi Herzog, No. He was before Rabbi Herzog. He was. Bef- it, he passed away 
13 years before the state was established. Ah, ah yes, that's okay. Um, and, and, and was he, the first one, Rav Helsig was the second. Got it. Okay, thank you for that. I, if I were born in Israel, I'd probably know that more instinctively. I can tell you the presidents of the United States uh, for the first hundred years. From the first until now? No, no, for the first hundred years, maybe. <laughs> and in my lifetime. Um, actually, probably for a hundred years back, but there's a gap in the middle. Um, it's important that you just mention uh, Rav Cook, Rabbi Cook, because he is so revered today, and he's revered in our community, in a religious Zionist community. Um, but I want to take a break, and I think when we come back, begin to wrap up the conversation, continuing with the converse, continuing with the dialogue about, okay, yes, what does it mean to be a house of prayer for all nations and being inclusive? But where our country is today, specifically vis-a-vis -vis Christians, because we've seen a number of things recently that are very dismaying that that uh, Rav Cook would be very concerned about. Let's take a quick break and then come back and, and begin to wrap up the conversation. I want to pause in the conversation for just a moment to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the Genesis 123 Foundation. This year, we have been going out all throughout the Judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism. It doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill, they are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers. You can join us and donate at genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. That's genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. And when you do, you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people. Please join us. Okay. Um, again, Rabbi Stav, uh, unbelievable conversation with you. I'm so grateful. I'm privileged, really. If no one, if no one listens to this conversation, I'm so privileged to have had it with you. We're seeing in the state, we need Rav Cook to come back and speak to people or someone who of his stature, because we're seeing recently and recently meaning in the last year and two years, a, an increasing number of anti-Christian acts. Most recently, if people go back, I think it's two weeks in the podcast, I had an interview with David Parsons from the International Christian Embassy about the Ministry of Interior not providing visas to Christian organizations in Israel um, on a somewhat unenlightened and, and even discriminatory note. And we've seen uh, acts of desecration of Christian property, cemeteries and churches and statues. And we've seen assaults, whether it's spitting or physical interaction, altercations um, at, at Christians who are identifiable in Israel. And that dismays me on, on a whole lot of levels. But clearly, it goes against the notion of what we know from, from the Torah, the, of, of every person being created in God's image. And these are behaviors that are not acceptable. They, we, we call them in Hebrew, a Hashem, a desecration of God's name. 
But even in the pre-state of Israel that Rav Kook um, oversaw from a spiritual perspective, we're seeing that, I, I'll use the word unraveling, coming apart. And again, maybe there's maybe it's that sense of arrogance. What's your perspective on this? And then we'll talk about how we as, as Orthodox Jews in Israel need to take the responsibility and what can be done to fix it. Look, first of all, I, I must say that um, there were always extreme fanatic Jews that uh, behaved in a, in a way that uh, is not proper, and right. uh, they should uh, should be put in in jail, should be sentenced, indicted, and sentenced if they were doing things that uh, are not legal. And I think uh, there should be no uh, compromise on that. That's one thing. I think the bigger issue is not the these um, specific events with all the um, with all the um, the the strict uh, approach that they give to that, but yet I think the main issue is educational. We need to educate our children and our society to understand what does it mean on one side to be Jewish and to be proud of being Jewish. On the other side, to understand that uh, we are a part of a big world that surrounds us and that uh, we should treat each one with kindness, with humanity, with justice, with love. Um, it's complicated. It's not easy. Because when you want to keep yourself uh, unique and when you want to educate yourself that you have a mission and that the mission, a part of the mission is that uh, you have to to keep your tradition and uh, not to assimilate and not to marry out. On the other side, you want to educate that other people are good and and, and um, could be righteous people among other religions, etc., etc. This uh, complicated message could confuse people. But that's why we need to educate. We need to educate for these values. And I believe that the vast majority of the modern Orthodox in Israel, and I believe that the vast majority of, even the, of the ultra-Orthodox in Israel would not be involved in such things. Uh, I, I believe that it's only people that belong to the very, very extreme groups and most of the pro the times they've uh, it doesn't come from religious uh, motivation it rather comes from uh, personal family problems educational problems it, it doesn't come from uh, religious theologies i don't theologies i don't see any uh, rise of a theology in israel that calls to a religious uh, fight against christians i, I don't see that uh, or at okay, least i that's... hope i don't see that no, I, I, I think that you're largely correct. Um, there are extremists. This does not represent Israeli society, but it does feel like there's it's happening more. And so my question to you is, and, and Jews who, who are connected to Israel will understand this more. Christians or, or, or Jews who are less connected won't understand this. Education Education is the is a cure partially for anti-Semitism. Anti, it's it's a it's a cure and it's essential for so many things. But one of the challenges in the state of Israel today 
is that you wear a knit kippah in the, as, a, as a member of the religious Zionist community. I wear a knit kippah. And people, going back even to the beginning of the conversation, there are secular Jews who look at us as religious people as part of the problem. And there are ultra-Orthodox Jews who may, may not look at us as part of a problem, but don't consider what Rabbi David Staub has to say as being terribly significant because you're not a member of, the, of, of a specific kind of ultra-Orthodox community. How do we fix that? You, you, can, you can have a, a, a weekly television program for half an hour on the state of Israel, but you're still on TV and radio and, 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 and speak in all these different communities, but still you're only going to reach a limited audience because, because we have these barriers. How do we overcome that? And, and I'm actually particularly interested in your interaction with the ultra-Orthodox community. Look, uh, from my experience, I learned that um, in today's world, there are no barriers. I mean, uh, when you think that I, when I speak in television, only um, secular people or more than Orthodox uh, see that, uh, we are mistaken. Okay. Because today in the internet world, uh, I, I would say that every second Haredi, uh, every every second ultra-Orthodox uh, watches uh, television, but I would say that they are exposed to what's going on there. And um, I have no other way, but A, we don't have the privilege to be desperate. We don't have the privilege to give up. And uh, I believe that the truth will, defeal, will defeat the false, the lie. And uh, that's my belief. And uh, I really believe that um, when people hear more and more values of uh, justice, values of morality, values of uh, beloved is the man that was created in the shape of God. And once people hear it more and more, they eventually uh, get the idea. But, um, you know, there is a famous rule in, in the oral Torah that says, um, It's not your job, it's not your mission to finish everything. But that's not an excuse not to do nothing. Yeah. So um, we have to do what we can do. And uh, we leave something for God to continue or for others to continue. Again, I wish that there was another dimension to a podcast because just in saying that, you've again created such a rapid increase in my heart rate because that I think so much sums up. And I don't know how much time we'll have in our lifetime to fix this, uh, all of it. And, and everything that you're involved with. But but what an enlightened perspective for which I'm grateful as a as a modern Orthodox Israeli Jew. And and I think I think you personally and Sohar as an organization embody so much of what we need um, to fix problems that we have in the state, to address the unity that we so desperately need. And as you've expressed so beautifully in many ways today, to engage our Christian friends and other non-Jews, um, that God willing, we will have that privilege of not just ascending to the Temple Mount to see a golden dome there and and pray for the Temple, but to actually return and and worship and uh, and, and fulfill what God Himself says that it will be a house of prayer 
for all nations. Um, I want to leave you with the last. I thank you. I want to leave you, Rabbi Staub, with the last word. Uh, we've we've approached many many different topics today. Yeah. We're in the midst of the high holiday season. What would you like to leave our listeners with? I would like to to share with all of our friends, wherever they are. Um, we all are here temporarily in this world. We will not live forever. And I think each one of us should ask himself from once in a while, by Jews we do this once a year, how did we succeed? How did we try to improve ourselves, to do more good for others, to make this world a better place to live in? And when we think about all this, what we have done good and what we have done wrong in the last year, each one of us should take upon himself to do at least one thing better with his with his wife, with his spouse, with his children, with his parents, with his uh, neighbors, to make our life look much better in the next year. So I want to wish everybody a happy new year. And uh, with all, um, from the depth of my heart, that we should do just good to each other. Amazing. Please, God, God will bless us. God willing. What a Rabbi Stav, I've said it many times, and it's not rhetoric. I don't get anything from flattering you. But again, this has been a tremendous personal privilege for me to have this time to speak with you. And I'm, by the time people are listening to this, it's already not a question of I hope to have the opportunity to share. This will be shared, and God willing, very, very widely. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for You're the very welcome. vision. Shana Tova, happy, happy New Year. And Shana Tova to you. Uh, let me let me just be, uh, wrap up. Uh, wow. I, I you know, in, in now in our third year, I have to say this has definitely been one of our best conversations. And I hope that you'll agree as you're listening and uh, and and share this widely. So people know that as we conclude the the episodes. I always offer an opportunity for people to get something. And if you haven't received enough from this conversation and still want more, that's fine. We've got more for you. Uh, what we're doing now for the remainder of the year is offering a free copy of the new, brand new book that we have published called Israel the Miracle. And all we ask that you do is go to the Inspiration from Zion social media and like and follow us. And when you do that and comment and share the link to this program, we will pick one person at random every month to receive a copy of this incredible new book for which there has been an announcement about uh, about during the course of this program. So please join us and, and, and share this conversation widely. We're always grateful that this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Will Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're in the area and need something, please pop in or just go and say hi and thank them for helping make conversations like this possible. And also special thanks to our friends, the Coin family as well, for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or special occasion or your favorite uh, modern Orthodox rabbi and organization like Zohar or other ministry, please be in touch with me at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We'd always love to hear your comments as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, especially questions that you have about traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs like this. 
please share this with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you.